Great. So um, I want to welcome everyone to this afternoon's presentation on appellate brief writing, sponsored by the Strategic Thought Leadership Committee of the Boston Bar Association's Bankruptcy Section. Uh, retired bankruptcy judge Joan Feeney and I are the co-chairs of the committee and want to thank you for attending the program. Uh, today's presentation will be approximately one hour. Uh, if you have any questions, please post them in the Q&A section at the bottom of your screen on Zoom. Uh, judge Feeney and I will be monitoring that and the panel will leave time at the end of the program to answer any questions that you have submitted. Uh, first, I want to remind everyone that the bankruptcy section's flagship program, Bankruptcy Bench Meets Bar Conference, is scheduled for Monday, May 23rd from 3 to 6 p.m. The educational part of the program is presented uh, via Zoom, so it'll be virtual. Uh, and the topics this year are update on Purdue Pharma and Insider's View, third-party releases, uh, important cases of interest, and subchapter five, when cases go wrong. Uh, all the bankruptcy judges in Massachusetts will be participating in the conference this year. Uh, and we are especially excited to announce that the chairman of the board of Purdue Pharma, uh, Stephen Miller, will be participating on the, on the Purdue Pharma panel with Judge Bailey. Uh, this year, there'll also be an opportunity to get together in person uh, with all of your colleagues at a reception on June 15th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the SIP Cafe in Post Office Square. Uh, complete details on the educational program and the uh, social aspect of the program uh, can be found on the uh, website of the Boston Bar Association. Hope to see everyone at this conference. Uh, today, we're very fortunate to have experienced appellate advocates on our panel. Leslie Storm has worked for the United States Bankruptcy Appellate Panel for the First Circuit for 10 years, first as its staff attorney and now as clerk of the court. Before that, she served as the first pro se law clerk for the United States Bankruptcy Court for the District of Massachusetts, where she developed a program to assist unrepresented bankruptcy filers that later became a model for other bankruptcy courts. Lynn Riley has served as a Chapter 7 panel trustee and Chapter 12 panel trustee, an examiner and trustee in Chapter 11 cases. Lynn was on the executive board of the National Association of Bankruptcy Trustees and chaired its amicus brief committee for many years. Lynn is a fellow of the American College of Bankruptcy, published numerous articles in the Norton Journal of Bankruptcy Law and Practice, Norton Annual Survey of Bankruptcy Law and American Bankruptcy Institute Journal, and was the editor of the consumer volume of the Norton Annual Survey of Bankruptcy Law and Practice. Then also taught consumer bankruptcy at Boston College Law School and New England Law. David Koha is of counsel, Kasner and Edwards, LLP in Boston, focusing his practice on bankruptcy and litigation. Uh, David is the author of many articles on bankruptcy topics, including in the Norton Annual Survey of Bankruptcy Law and Norton Journal of Bankruptcy Law and Practice. At this time, I'd like to turn it over to Judge Feeney to introduce, uh, provide a few more introductory remarks. Thank you, Don, and thank you to our distinguished panelists. Um, our new committee of the BBA, the Strategic Thought Leadership uh, Committee, um, had, had the idea to facilitate the development of bankruptcy law 
in, in the First Circuit and to encourage the filing of amicus curiae briefs in the appellate courts. Whether your appeal is to an intermediate appellate court and whether that court is the bankruptcy appellate panel or the district court, whether your appeal is to the First Circuit Court of Appeals or you have um, been granted a petition for certiorari before the Supreme Court of the United States in a bankruptcy appeal, your brief is your essential opportunity to provide the appellate court with your arguments in support of reversal, if you're the appellant, or affirmance if you're the appellee. Um, if you file a poor brief, whatever you say in oral argument is going to be inconsequential. So the importance of a persuasive, effective appellate brief cannot be um, underscored. Uh, what you will learn today is how to file a persuasive appellate brief. Um, writing clearly and persuasively and authoritatively. Um, you will learn about the importance of following the procedural rules um, in the federal rules of bankruptcy procedure, those that apply in the federal rules of appellate procedure and the local rules of the district court, um, if you choose to go there or the BAP, if you choose to go there. Um, Lynn and David have um, provided a wonderful uh, checklist of all of the different uh, protocols and formatting um, issues that you need um, to be aware of. Uh, Leslie, in particular, will discuss the importance of addressing the standard of review in, um, in, in your brief. And all of our panelists will talk about the importance of uh, developing and articulating your central message and theme, as well as techniques for structuring and organizing your argument, whether you're the appellant or the appellee, um, finding the law and uh, discussing the law, um, organizing the facts and using um, the facts to, to your advantage. Um, I'd like to um, tell you about one resource that, that I used um, in my role as um, a lecturer at um, Suffolk Law School where I coached the Duberstein Moot Court theme, uh, team. It's, um, it's a book that's available on Amazon, Persuasive Written and Oral Advocacy in Trial and Appellate Courts by Michael Fontham and Michael Vidiello. Here it is, if you can see it through my my Zoom virtual appearance. Um, if if you'd like if you'd like me to send you this citation to the book, I'd I'd be glad to. Uh, so with that, we'll proceed with our um, our presentation. We um, would like you first to respond to a few uh, poll questions that David is going to put um, on onto the screen, so we can gauge your experience with writing appellate briefs. And with that, I'll turn it over to David. Thank you to all. Thank you, Judge Feeney. Um, so I'm gonna to try to get this poll up and um, 
Adam, if you could help me out with that, actually, I think um, uh, I don't see the link for it. So hopefully Adam can get that up for us, but I think uh, Leslie's going to actually begin our presentation. So I'll turn it over to Leslie at this point. All righty, thanks, David. Uh, while we're working out the kinks uh, with the poll, I'll begin. Oh, look, there we go. Um, terrific. While you're taking a look at these basic poll questions, I'd like to thank you again for sharing your lunch hour with us. I'm going to begin with a discussion of the structure of an appellate brief with some emphasis on a brief filed with the BAP. David will then talk about substantive issues, for example, how to preserve issues for review. And then Lynn will go on to discuss the process itself of brief writing. When I refer to the structure of a brief, I'm really referring to two things. One, the required items to be included, and two, the format. Now you might ask, why is the structure of an appellate brief so important that we would talk about it right out of the gate in this discussion? Well, there are three reasons. One is having all of the necessary ingredients in your brief enhances your credibility before the reviewing court. Two, on the other hand, missing the necessary ingredients has negative consequences. Um, the most benign of these would be the issuance of a deficient brief order with the direction to cure the deficiency. But it could be more serious. If you're missing something, you might forfeit an issue on appeal. And thirdly, lastly, especially if you're the appellant, you have a duty to facilitate the job of the reviewing court, which often has thousands of pages to read for a single appeal. And part of this duty is a complete, well-composed brief. So with that in mind, uh, let's move on to our next slide. So let's talk about brief components. The key message here is that the structure of an appellate brief is not an opportunity to exercise your creativity. The required sections or parts of an appellate brief are entirely prescribed by rule. First and foremost in a bankruptcy appeal, the federal rules of bankruptcy procedure, but those are just the beginning. Every court has local rules that you should consult. There are other valuable resources as well. I highly recommend looking at the docket of the court where you're filing your brief for samples of briefs that have been deemed acceptable in cases that have actually made it to a merits review. Much of the challenge of organizing and creating your draft can be simplified by creating a template for your appellate brief that has a heading for each section that appears either in the federal rules or the reviewing court's checklist posted on its website. Uh, next slide. So uh, let's begin at the beginning, the cover page. Even the contents of the cover page are prescribed by rule. It seems basic, but often parties leave out critical information. Everything you need to know about the cover page is in uh, Bankruptcy Rule 8015. Um, our next slide 
uh, is a fine example of a cover page that covers all the bases, no pun intended. Um, your cover page is an example where a book will be judged by its cover. First impressions do count. Uh, practice pointer, identify whether it's an opening brief or a reply brief, and do include all of your contact information. Courts do use it. So that brings us to the contents of an appellant's opening brief. So this slide is your checklist for a brief filed with the back. If you have a section that corresponds to each item listed on this slide, you will have a solid template for the structure of a brief to be filed with the back. Uh, we're going to take a closer look at some of these component parts in a bit. Um, so uh, if we move to the next slide, um, you'll see the BAP's internal checklist. And most reviewing courts have similar checklists that are posted on their websites. Uh, this is a checklist that we use to screen every single incoming brief. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of the minutia here of each uh, line item, but uh, this is essentially the framework or of your template. So uh, this is a two-page slide, so we can move on. A couple practice pointers if you are writing the brief or the appellant in an appeal before the BAP. Do be sure to include statements uh, of interested parties and related cases. These forms are prescribed by local rule. And do be sure to include your preferences regarding oral argument. Uh, this is a valuable opportunity to communicate with the reviewing court and your preferences will be considered when the BAP determines whether your case will be set for oral argument or a determination on the brief. So it's a, a good opportunity not to forfeit. Uh, next slide, please. So the contents of the appellee's brief essentially mirror the contents of the appellant's brief, uh, minus a few sections identified here, unless the appellee is dissatisfied with the way those sections were presented in the appellant's brief. That brings us to the appellant's reply brief. Uh, the appellant's reply brief is optional, but a well-composed reply brief can only help. A reply brief should be regarded as an opportunity, uh, not to repeat what has already been stated in the opening brief, but uh, rather to respond in a pointed way to the arguments made in the appellee's brief. So that brings us to form. Here again, the fine details of your brief are prescribed by rule, including font size, spacing, margins, and word count. Uh, so by now, you get the message, uh, the rules are your friend. In the word count, headings and footnotes do count. The statement concerning oral argument does not. Uh, we won't go into the minutiae today of the format of your brief, but do study AD 15 
for the fine details. Uh, let's take a close look at one of your component parts, the statement of issues presented. The issues identified in the statement of issues contained in your brief should essentially mirror the issues you identified in the statement of issues you were required to file with the bankruptcy court. If they don't, in other words, if they don't mirror each other, there's a chance that the newly introduced issue in your brief will not be considered, but it's going to be deemed waived. So this section of your brief should really be on your mind early in the case. In fact, as soon as your statement of issues is filed with the bankruptcy court. Also here, more is not necessarily better. An average number of issues identified in your brief is probably three or four. If you are identifying eight or nine issues and some litigants do, it's probable that there's some redundancy in there. And practically speaking, the eighth or ninth issue is likely not going to receive the same level of focus. So the challenge with the statement of issues is striking a delicate balance between identifying enough, but not overdoing it. So let's now take a closer look at your statement of the case. Um, this section should really be more than a recitation of the chronology of the bankruptcy court docket. Uh, it should read like a carefully crafted story, but every assertion should be supported with the citation to the record that uh, should look like the parenthetical on this slide here. The form is actually prescribed by local rule. The lack of citations to the record is a shortcoming that very often does lead to a deficient brief order from the BAP and requires resubmission of the brief. Um, let's take a look now at the argument section. Uh, this is essentially a list of do's and don'ts for your argument, which is really the heart of the matter. Um, clearly identify the bankruptcy court's error of fact or conclusion of law and specify the relief requested. In identifying the error of the trial court, the language looks something like this. Uh, the bankruptcy court committed error when it found fill in the blank. The bankruptcy court erred when it concluded fill in the error of law. Uh, do cite to binding first circuit precedent. And if you are citing to non-binding precedent beyond our circuit, explain why it should be followed. Uh, always acknowledge contrary authority and to the extent that you're able, distinguish it. Uh, make sure the cited case stands for the cited proposition. This requires reading the facts of the case beyond the Westlaw blurb. Uh, as a matter of style, don't disparage your opponent or the court and don't hyperbolize. Hyperbole comes in a number of forms all of which should be avoided. The most obvious is the grandiose statement, but um, 
overuse of underlining and bolding and italicizing are also really to be regarded as forms of hyperbole to minimize or avoid. Above all, don't misrepresent the record. And above all, be candid about the weaknesses of your case because they will always be discovered by the reviewing court. So let's take a look at some examples of do's and don'ts in your argument section. So in our first example here, this author did some things well. The citation to the record is in, in uh, great form, compliant with the rules, and it's well-placed at the end of the statement. Not so great is the use of bolding and underlining, especially the combined use. Yes, it gets attention, but it's negative attention. It's really clutter. The brief will be read carefully even without these devices. Let's look at another example from the same brief, same author. Uh, this is more of the same, except that here we even have the added use of italics. Again, this is unnecessary. With the overuse of these devices, this particular author has reached the point of diminishing returns. Let's take another look at an example from an argument section in a brief filed with the BAP. What is commendable in this brief excerpt is that this particular author made a concerted effort to identify the standard of review and to identify where or how the bankruptcy court erred. But in the execution, the standard of review and assignment of error got kind of jumbled. If you are not sure how to articulate the standard of review and how to accurately say the bankruptcy court got something wrong, case law is replete with examples on just about every single type of order you might consider appealing. And so these cases are worth consulting for the appropriate language. Uh, next example. It's really important to inform the reviewing court what relief you seek with accuracy. Here, the author made an attempt to do this. That's a plus. But uh, the relief was not stated with accuracy. Appellate courts don't overrule. They reverse. Uh, let's have another example from a brief filed with the bankruptcy court. Uh, this one reads, the bankruptcy court was untroubled by the abuses of Appley's counsel. Well, here I would say in stating what the bankruptcy court got wrong, it's important to do so without tone and without disparaging the court. This particular illustration is a kind of jab at the bankruptcy court, which is really unwelcome and unhelpful. Let's take another look. Um, I would say here, um, 
This is an example of a do. It's an articulate statement of the relief sought by this particular litigant. And I can't think of uh, how I might improve upon it. So that's a do. Um, let's move on to our next slide. Assuming that uh, you have a well-composed brief and you are ready to go, the method of filing at the back would be electronic unless you're a pro se litigant. In that case, a paper brief would be accepted. And I do believe the circuit as well does accept paper copies. Next slide. Uh, I can't emphasize enough the importance of a timely brief. Uh, in our circuit, timeliness is still regarded as a jurisdictional requirement. So I'm not going into all of the details of timely filing here. I wanna save questions, a time for a question and answer period, but uh, do consult the rules for the particular time requirements of your court. Uh, essentially it's 30 days, 30 days, 14 days. Um, next slide. In further illustration of the premise that much of brief writing is dictated by rule, it's worth taking a look at two specific types of briefs. Uh, one would be the briefs filed in cross appeals, which is uh, prescribed by rule 8016. And your amicus brief will be dictated by rule 8017. Uh, in the case of amicus briefs, a leave of court or consent of all the parties is required. And the key ingredients for your request for leave uh, identify the movement's interest and explain why the brief is desirable. So with that, um, run through. I'm going to turn over our discussion to David, who is going to pick up with the nitty gritty of the record and some more substantive issues. Great. Thanks, Leslie. Um, the, uh, the issues of designation of the record and, and the appendix, which I'll also talk about, are, are very important. Um, you can have the most brilliant, well-cited, uh, well-formatted brief, but if you haven't preserved the issues, um, you, you, you're not going to prevail in your appeal. And so the designation of the record occurs early in the appeal. It, um, it's the appellant's burden to file the designation of items that are going to be included in the record on appeal. And um, this uh, is filed in the bankruptcy court. And it's, um, you know, like I said, the appellant's burden to ensure that it's a complete record before the court. And in fact, if the record is, is not complete, if there's an inadequate record, uh, the court may refuse to review findings of fact. Um, so this, this is an important issue. It goes to strategy. It goes to preservation of rights. Um, and so, you know, Leslie, a question, how often um, at the BAP do you see issues um, in appeals uh, with regard to insufficient designations? Uh, David, unfortunately, this is a fairly regular occurrence. 
um, failure to uh, designate the necessary items occurs with, with some regularity and only in extraordinary circumstances will the reviewing court uh, reach the issue if unsupported by an adequate record. Right, thanks, Leslie. So the, it's obviously an important issue. If, uh, if you're the appellee, uh, you should carefully review the appellant's designation to ensure that it's complete. So even though it's the appellant's burden, as the appellee, you wanna make sure that all the items that you'll need to you know, be referring to in your brief are included in the record. And so you have 14 days uh, to review and, and file an additional um, designation of items to be included in the record. It's not required to do so, uh, but you may do so. Uh, if, you're, if you're filing a cross appeal, then it becomes mandatory. You, you need to file an additional statement of issues and designation of items to be included in the record. And uh, you know, if, if you're the appellant and you're leaving out records that the appellee then has to go and add to the record, if, if, you know, if there's numerous items that, uh, that are omitted in the appellant designation, uh, it doesn't uh, generally reflect well uh, with the court. And so, um, so another question to you, Leslie, how does the court look at that if, you know, if the appellant's designation omits uh, you know, several items, uh, significant items, and then the appellee has to file an additional designation? Uh, David, you know, I would say that this tactic is not outcome determinative. It's not going to win your case and it's not going to cause you to lose, but it does impact seriously upon your credibility. It doesn't look good. And um, I can't think of an advantage of omitting documents because they're going to be discovered anyway by the reviewing court who is in a position to take a judicial notice of the trial court's docket. So the omission will be detected and it's, it's frowned upon in short. Right, so um, so let's take a look at a, uh, an example here. This is a, 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 an appeal of a motion to convert a um, chapter 11 case to a chapter seven case. And what you can see here is you've got um, the designation of items as well as the statement of the issues. Um, I would say it's very succinct, which when it comes to the statement of the issues, as Leslie mentioned, you know, you don't want to um, have eight or nine different issues. Here, there's only one, which is fine. Uh, it may, you know, that that's you're succinctly stating what the issue is on appeal. But in terms of the record, um, the designation here, uh, this was a case that that Lynn and I were involved in, and you know, so we reviewed this and determined, you know, well, it's got the motion to convert, it's got the the uh, debtor's response, it's got the court's order, and then it's also got the motion for reconsideration and the order on that. But um, there's, there were numerous other items that needed to be included from our view in the record on appeal. So here's our additional designation. And so as you can see there, you know, there's, there was a lot going on in this bankruptcy case. And um, so we've got you know, items such as the schedules, right? In a, in a bankruptcy case, there could be a whole wide range of documents that are relevant to your appeal. So you know, not just the motion and an opposition, but also, you know, the schedules or, you know, uh, going further down the list here, you've got things like proofs of claim that may have been filed in the case that may be relevant 
to the appeal, as well as in this case, there was an adversary proceeding that was related to the main bankruptcy case, where there were some occurrences that um, were relevant to the determination on the motion to convert. So, uh, so this is an, a, a, a designation of additional items um, that you know ensures that there's a complete record, so that the the the, the reviewing court in this in in looking at what the bankruptcy court did in converting the case is able to look at everything that went into consideration of that order. Um, so that's the designation of the record. Uh, the appendix is, it comes later, it comes, you know, you're filing the appendix with the, the brief. And uh, what I've listed here is um, the contents of the appendix. And I'm not going to go through every item. But as you know, as I had already mentioned with regard to the, the record, um, you know, in a bankruptcy case, you, you are looking at a, a, a variety of different documents, in addition to the items that need to be included by rule, like the judgment, or the order being appealed and the pleadings at issue, you know, you've got to look at things like the schedules and statements and so forth. Also very important uh, is to look at transcripts. Uh, often transcripts are um, going to contain findings of fact or the evidence on which the court relied. Uh, so transcripts are very often going to be absolutely crucial to your appeal. Um, and, and the last point on this slide is that um, the, you, know, you can only include in the appendix documents that were properly before the bankruptcy court. And um, the BAP also has a very helpful checklist that I've included here. Again, not going to go through every item, but uh, it, this, this lists everything that you really should be thinking about when it comes to your appendix. You know, you've got to have a cover page with a caption. Uh, it's got to be paginated and so forth. So, um, and a, a few key items in terms of the format. The appendix is separate from the brief. It's, it's like I said, it's got to have a cover page and it's and you're referring to the appendix in your brief. So as Leslie pointed out, the format for that. So you have to make sure you paginate your appendix uh, and also include a table of contents. Again, the, the appendix is the appellant's burden. And so you've got to make sure you include the relevant portions of the record. Again, there's an opportunity as the appellee to submit a um, an additional, you know, a, a, a supplement to the appendix if it's missing anything. Again, not, not going to necessarily reflect very well on the appellant if there's documents that are omitted. And uh, it's not sufficient to designate an item in the record. It, it, in, if, you, if you're missing something from your appendix, the court can refuse to review it. And there is no opportunity to correct, unfortunately, the appendix. If you, if you, if you file an appendix that's missing something, you're not going to get an order from the court saying you need to supplement this with such and such document. You may have waived whatever issue you're trying to rely on in terms of the document. And so, Leslie, in, in your experience, you know, do you um, do you see documents missing from the appendix, and then what is the impact of that uh, with respect to the appeal? Uh, the impact is is potentially severe. Um, it could range from waiver of a single important issue on appeal, but it could be even worse than that. It could be uh, in the, if you're the appellant, it could result in dismissal of the appeal for failure to uh, facilitate the court's review. And the burden of facilitating review is always on the appellant. So 
the omission is potentially fatal. It's never helpful and potentially fatal. Great, thanks, Leslie. Uh, the last thing that I'm gonna cover is the addendum to the brief. In the, uh, in the BAP, this is, this is not necessarily required, although the rules do require that any governing statutes, rules, or regulations are either set out in the brief or in an addendum. So if, if there's a, a critical stat, statutory provision at issue, uh, that can be included in an addendum, uh, which doesn't count against the page limit for your brief. Uh, in the First Circuit, the addendum is required. It has to include copies of the judgment, uh, decision, ruling, or order being appealed from. And also there's an optional, but encouraged, which is, that's the language from the rule, up to additional, um, 25 additional pages of other items or short, short excerpts from the record that are a subject of an issue on appeal. And so I would say good practice is whenever the court says something is optional, but encouraged, uh, I would also encourage you to do that. Um, so we'll uh, transition at this point to Lynn, who is going to go through um, some of the process of writing a brief, uh, you know, the, the nitty gritty of uh, how to write a persuasive brief. And, you know, my, my first job out of law school was at Lynn's firm. She, you know, has a, a very well-developed, I would say, very thorough, um, uh, just an excellent approach to writing briefs. And it was a, a great privilege to be able to learn from her um, and to continue to work with, with Lynn now. So I'll turn it over to Lynn uh, for her presentation. Hi everyone, uh, sorry for my movement. I almost lost power <laughs> and disappeared. So. Um, so I'm gonna talk about the process of writing appellate briefs. Um, it's, it, it's a, in many ways, it's a painful process. Um, it's, it requires, it, I, for me, incredible focus uh, during the period in which you're doing it. But the first thing I'd say is that you make sure you leave enough time because you are going to, as we'll see, be doing um, extensive editing and review and you wanna leave time to make sure that you're not rushing at the end because then you're gonna file something riddled with mistakes um, and potentially um, disadvantage yourself. So the first thing to consider um, when you're faced with an appeal is your audience. Um, here, in most instances, not the BAP, obviously they're specialists, but the district circuit and Supreme Courts are all um, courts of, they're generalists, the, the judges are generalists. So they may know little um, about bankruptcy and perhaps nothing at all about the real life situation that you're dealing with. Um, their goal is practical and they're looking for a well-reasoned result and they need it to be grounded in precedent or a solid extension of existing law. Um, they're gonna consider the real, broader real world implications. Um, if you've ever watched Supreme Court arguments and you've watched uh, Justice Breyer, I don't know if they were real world, but um, he was always questioning um, th those appearing before him about what does this mean? What does this, what's gonna happen in the real world? Suppose we have this situation and of course the other justices do that as well. Um, another thing is they're busy people. They've got piles and piles of briefs to read. So brevity is important. Um, you don't need to repeat arguments. Leslie touched on this um, longer or is not better um, or issues is, is not better. So consider this um, when, you're, when you're looking at who, who you're actually writing the brief for. 
Um, so next you have to consider and evaluate um, the relief that you're looking for. Um, again, restraint designating issues, more is not better. Um, you're gonna dilute your best arguments if you bury them in excess issues. You, if there's clear statutory text or binding precedent, you need to really look deeply uh, at what you're going to present on appeal, if anything. Um, consider do the lower court's factual findings put you squarely within statutory text or binding precedent because um, if the court's factual findings are dispositive on a legal issue, you're under a clearly erroneous standard and you're going to have an uphill battle. So really um, think about what it is um, that, that you want to pursue. Um, as far as the standard of review, um, you're going to need to evaluate each of your issues. What's the standard of review for each issue? You've got de novo, clearly erroneous, um, mixed questions of law and fact, and abuse of discretion standards. Um, be specific um, what the issues in your case, what um, standard the issues in your case fall under, and actually state that in the standard of review. Oftentimes you just see a blanket statement, you know, issues of fact are reviewed um, as clearly erroneous and issues of law are, are de novo, but if you have, for example, um, I had a couple of cases here that I would read uh, what, the dis what the standard review would be. So here I have a bankruptcy court's determination on a discretionary matter such as surcharging a receiver is not reviewable except where a clear abuse of discretion is apparent. So that would be something you would want if you, if that was the issue in your case, you'd want to be very specific. Um, another, the Court of Appeals reviews the bankruptcy court certification of the adversary proceeding below pursuant to federal bankruptcy rule 9028, utilizing an abuse of discretion standard. Um, and uh, the applicability of collateral estoppel is a matter of law, and thus this court reviews de novo the bankruptcy court's preclusion rule. So, as I said, be specific. Um, let the court know what your issue is and what standard of review it falls under. Um, the, next, you're going to um, review the proceedings below and, and draft your statement of the case. You're going to be looking at, and this is really important if you're coming in on appeal and you were not trial counsel. Um, you need to review the prior proceedings and the travel of the case. You need to examine all relevant orders, decisions, the transcripts of any hearings or trials. Um, and you um, need to then prepare your statement of the case and uh, especially if you're dealing with um, different forums, you would wanna use subheadings. So if, for example, there was a prior receivership, simple subheadings, I mean, it's just gonna break it up and, and provide a roadmap for the reviewing court. And it's gonna make it a lot easier for them to, to read and to be able to scan and sort of get a sense of the, of the prior proceedings um, right out of the gate. And of course, you need to cite to the record. So we, we now know what our legal issues are. We've identified what they are and what we're gonna be pursuing. So this is, can be the tortuous 
part, <laughs> uh, at least it has been for me, because you need to do extensive research, obviously, but you also know need to know when to stop. And, um, you know, we all go looking for that case that has a, the perfect language and exactly on point, but it rarely exists. So at some point you, you need to just, you know, stop, stop the research and start organizing. And, you know, here is where you can really help yourself um, as far as being able to put together a good outline. I organize by just creating folders and identifying the issues. So if I have three issues on appeal, you create a folder um, and you put your cases into those folders and, um, and I tend to uh, print out my cases, um, but you can also use the uh, typewriter function if you're, if you're keeping your cases um, in folders virtually. But what I find is that if you, when you're reading cases, it's the perfect way to train yourself to write good legal briefs. So I will, if I have a case that, you know, it, it says something I may want, but I'm, I'm not necessarily going to include it, but it's so well written, then I will write at the top, you know, very well written, um, uses good language. And so, but then I will sequence, <laughs> sequence my cases by precedent. So if you've got issue one and the most, uh, the most important case, I'll put it on top and then I will um, put them in descending order. And that way um, I know which cases I need to talk about. And then I will later determine um, whether I wanna want to include the cases that um, maybe are lesser important. Um, if you're the appellant, you wanna put your strongest argument first. However, if there is a statutory or threshold issue, that should definitely go first. If, the appellate, if you're the appellee, address your opponent's best arguments first is a, is a good practice. Um, you need your argument to be logical. Um, so um, within, within each um, issue, you're gonna want to break that down further and use you know, subheadings in order to ensure that it's easily presented. And then while I'm going through my research and creating an outline, uh, you wanna be identifying facts along the way that support these arguments. Um, and then you're gonna draft the statement of facts. So these are the facts that obviously are relevant to your argument. And you can use uh, limited others um, for context, but for the most part, you, you wanna really stick with what are the relevant facts. Uh, you're gonna cite them from your appendix and your addendum, um, but you wanna tell a compelling story and it, and it should be told within the standard of your review for the issue, um, for the issues. It's going to provide context for your arguments. Um, as Leslie talked about, you don't want to elaborate your facts or ignore, um, you don't want to exaggerate your facts and, and you don't want to um, overlook um, bad facts. You know, make sure you, you, you also address, you don't want that coming up for the first time in your opponent's brief. So address them um, head on. 
your narrative structure, you know, this is simple narrative structure. I mean, this is all good writing, not necessarily just good legal writing. You're telling a story, you know, use an introductory paragraph, use subheadings, topic sentences, um, focus on one idea in, in each paragraph and, you know, limit the number of sentences that you're gonna put in your paragraphs. Typically, you know, anywhere between, I'd say three and five sentences per paragraph is ideal. Um, the story is usually going to be chronological, but in some instances there may be parallel stories. So you just need you need the narrative uh, to be logical and compelling, obviously. <laughs> um, so now you're going to draft your legal arguments. You want to frame um, your desired outcome in a neutral yet persuasive way. Uh, you want to focus on the most relevant cases with detailed analysis. Obviously, the most relevant cases are the ones that, that are precedential and then, um, and then declining in pers persuasive value. Um, use even-handed persuasion. And pr you want to present your arguments so that they are easily transformed into a legal ruling. And this is where reading good decisions comes in. Um, you know, if you've, if you've looked at if you've been you know, reading your briefs and, and identifying very well-written um, decisions, see how the, the court then frames the rulings and consider that when you're presenting your own arguments. Um, so here's an example of an appellant's argument um, in a case that I was involved, David and I were involved in. And here it's just simply, Leslie had mentioned that you, know, that, that you would wanna state in your argument, um, if you're the appellant, you know, the, the court below aired. This wasn't done here. It's, it's a strategy, you know, it's, a very, it's just a very straightforward um, statement of the ruling that the appellant wants. Um, so, but it, it also, it framed differently, could state the, the, the bankruptcy court below erred in not determining that the main final judgment establishes that Bruno's claim is non-dischargeable and so on. Um, our, um, we were the appellee and um, the, the argument of the appellee here is, is broken out as my outline would have been broken out. So here we have the, the bankruptcy court correctly held the language of the court below and then the, the disposition of the case and then the subheadings. Um, so here we're talking about non-dischargeability provisions. The first one's 523A2A and um, we've broken that down into subheading, subheadings um, which further distills the arguments um, for why um, collateral estoppel was unavailable to, to the appellant. And then the second argument was um, section 523A2B and, um, and, and also we had an issue of waiver. So we threw in um, that the failure to provide notice to the claim precluded him from even pursuing it on appeal. So this is an example of, of, of an outline turned into your arguments. Um, and I've got another one um, from uh, amicus briefs that were filed in the Clark v. Ramaker case. Um, Tara Toomey represented the National Consumer Law Center here. 
and she um, is a very good writer and this was how she framed her issues uh, from the perspective of, of the Amigas um, participant. And um, so we have Congress intended and drafted the retirement funds exemption to be straightforward and broad. So here is the amicus, you're looking more towards policy. I mean, that's why an amicus um, brief is filed, is typically that there are real world policy considerations that the participant is looking to address. So in that instance, it's fine to put your policy arguments first. Typically, if you're on, uh, if you're submitting merits briefs, you're not going to do that. You're going to put them later on in your argument. Um, and then um, there are subheadings, as you can see, uh, in protecting retirement savings, Congress rejected limitations. And the second one is, is a plan language um, argument. And then we have the second main argument, the Court of Appeals decision below injects uncertainty into the scope of the retirement funds exemption. Uh, so, and then um, the, the next example is, uh, was our brief, the amicus brief filed in support of the appellee and the bankruptcy. So again, we have three arguments here um, and you know, you're coordinating this. You're not repeating, you're adding something to the briefs that have already been filed um, on the, the merits briefs, the petitioner and the respondents briefs. So you wanna be careful and not just submitting excessive issues. So here again, both Tara's brief and my brief limit those and address the policy arguments first. And then we're looking at plain meaning and functional analysis. Uh, reveal that inherited IRAs do not constitute exempt retirement funds. And then a couple of subheadings, uh, plain meaning of retirement funds excludes and so forth, and then the functional attributes of an inherited IRA um, uh, demonstrate that it does not constitute retirement funds. And then my third argument, which mirrors, I think, Tara's second argument, um, I say the Seventh Circuit correctly held that inherited IRAs do not constitute retirement funds. So I'm agreeing that the Seventh Circuit below um, had correctly ruled. So, um, after you've basically drafted your brief, so you've got all the required components um, except the summaries, you're gonna um, you're gonna edit exhaustively, and um, you're gonna cut legalese. And I suggest that you speak as speak through as you're drafting. Um, you know, you you this is you know the language is is a lawyer's greatest tool, and you, you want it to you want it to be presented in a way that's natural. So I always, um, when, when reading back to myself, um, anything that I've written, I try and think, how does this sound if it actually comes out of my mouth? So cut unnecessary, also cut unnecessary uh, repetitive authority, um, avoid long string sites. Sometimes, you know, if you're looking at, a, for example, a Supreme Court case where you've got, um, <coughs> you know, well, usually you will have a split in the circuits, then you're going to need to um, cite to all of those. But um, oftentimes you can get away with one or two um, precedential cases and that's sufficient. And um, avoid extensive footnotes. It's not 
if you're using it to um, circumvent the page requirement, that's going to be very apparent. But there, there are limited circumstances in which you want to use footnotes. Again, cut unnecessary words, sentences, paragraphs, um, rework awkward, unnatural phrasing and sentences. And this is um, really important. David sent me something that he said he read over the weekend. And I'm just going to read it to you because I, I thought it was very uh, fitting. Um, so David's reading, I guess, a book about Leonardo da Vinci. And, um, and in this, he was talking about painting. And he says, it is also a very good plan every now and then to go away and have a little relaxation. For when you come back to the work, your judgment will be sure, since to remain constantly at work will cause you to lose the power of judgment. And um, it, it sort of reflects perfectly what I found, which is when I when I take a day and I just put it away and I and I really try and put it out of my head and I go back to it the next day, you just see it with fresh eyes. And I and I try and do that. There's not always time. I mean, we're all busy. Um, we've got lots of other cases usually going on. And, and as it is, you know, staying so focused to be able to do this is difficult. But at least towards the end, put it away for a day and come back to it fresh. Um, I don't know how we're doing on time. We're very close. Well, we I don't know that I'm going to be able to do this. So um, these will be, we're going to make these slides available. Um, we, one of our themes is brevity, but we weren't brief in putting our slides together. So here is an argument. Um, I'm not going to um, go through that right now, but it sets forth, you know, what you have is your introductory paragraph. And then you've got, which is one sentence, and that's perfectly fine. And then three paragraphs following that um, basically are further elaborating on what you've said in your introduction. And then draft your summary and conclusion at the end. Um, don't even try and do it before you've fully briefed the issues. And then I've got an example of um, a summary of argument that will be included in the, in the PDF of the, of the slides. So um, that's it. Sorry, we didn't have more time. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Lynn, and, and thank you all. We do have a number of um, great questions. I'm waiting to hear whether we can extend for a, a few minutes, but I'll start with, um, with um, two questions for uh, Leslie. Um, the, the first is, um, how does a brief writer go about being candid about uh, weaknesses in an argument? Well, when doing that, uh, one should do it with the state of mind that the weakness is going to be discovered anyway, either by your opponent or by the court itself. So by being upfront about the weakness and disclosing it, you are doing two things. Uh, one is you are reflecting well on your own credibility. And number two, as far as the substance of your case goes, disclosing the weakness of your case is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to maybe dull the negative facts impact, to put on spin, to present it in a way that you would like the reviewing court to view it. 
Um, maybe uh, language to use if you're looking for specific vocabulary is appellant uh, acknowledges that, fill in the blank. And then the task is to reduce the significance of that so-called bad fact or bad law. And you do that by maybe emphasizing the cumulative effect of the good facts, or you do it by pointing to a case that was similarly confronted with this fact and how was it dealt with? Or perhaps there's a policy argument to be made. But whatever the way to dull the impact is, you want to make sure that you're in the driver's seat of that bad fact and present it in a way uh, that best uh, suits your case. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll chime in, in in response to, to that as well, because I, I think it's a key question. Um, number one, um, if, if there are uh, cases um, that go against your position, you should deal with them. And you should talk about why they are not binding precedent if they are from other intermediate um, uh, appellate courts. Um, so, so with that, this is a yes or a no question also for Leslie. Um, do, do most people seek extensions of time to file uh, briefs? Um, it's a common occurrence, uh, honestly. Uh, we receive at the BAP many motions for extension of time. And uh, if they are presented to the court timely, in other words, before the deadline expires, and there is a respectable reason for the request, generally a request for our extension of reasonable length will be granted. Thank you. And I, I think it um, makes sense before you file it to ask your um, opponent for um, an assent to, to the motion, um, because if it comes in assented to, then it will usually be routinely allowed. Uh, the next couple of questions are for David about the record and appendices. Um, and um, thank you to the BBA. We, we have received an extension of time for for our program. So I think we'll have a um, plenty of time to address um, the questions. And if we don't, I'm sure that our um, panelists will respond to any emails the registrants uh, wish, wish to send them. Uh, with regard to the appendix, um, David, uh, as, a, as an appellee writing, writing the brief for the appellee, should the Appalachian Council leave um, erroneously undesignated items out? Uh, what if what if somebody has improperly designated? If there if there are documents included in the appendix that shouldn't have been included, I think it sounds like is that what the question's about? Uh, erroneously undesignated items. Um, omitted. So yes, um, items left out. I mean, I think the question is focused on a designation versus a, a counter designation. So, so talk about the ability to designate and then to counter designate by leaving um, undesignated, by including undesignated items 
or right. improperly designated an item. And Leslie, please weigh in as well if you have thoughts. Right. I think it. Yeah. I think that that's a good question, and I think that there uh, there could be two different um, errors, I suppose, in designation. One, I think, is what the question is asking is if something's omitted, and in that case, as the appellee, you'd want to submit a supplemental appendix that includes whatever document has been omitted. Then if something is included in the appendix that shouldn't have been included because it wasn't before the bankruptcy court, that, that should be pointed out for, cer for certain, yeah. What is the difference between the record and the appendix? There are two different things, correct? Correct, yes. So the-, the Can you explain the difference, please? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the designation of the record occurs as one of the first events in the case, and you're filing that with the bankruptcy court, and you're just listing the documents that can consist of the record, right? Everything that had any bearing on the court's decision. And um, But the appendix is then the document that assembles every everything that the court needs to consider. When you're designating the record, you're going to be over-inclusive, most likely. You're going to include everything that could have any bearing whatsoever on the decision. The appendix is probably going to be a subset of it um, because it's going to include everything you want the court to consider that you think is that needs to be considered for the court to decide the issue. So they're, they're different documents, but there's going to be obviously a lot of overlap. I, mean, I, I'm, I want to come back to the next question later, um, and I'd like to weigh in on, on it too, but, but we have another question about omissions. Um, what, if anything, can the appellant's counsel do at the reply brief stage uh, when um, realizing that after reading the appellee's brief, there was something that should have been cited in the reply, but it wasn't included in the appendix? Um, what should um, the appellant do? Uh, that is a good question. I'd, I'd have to look at the rules specifically on supplementing your appendix and when that might be uh, an option. Uh, Leslie, do you know off the top of your head what the rules provide in that regard? Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know, but um, I would take advantage of the opportunity to file a motion to uh, supplement the record at the earliest opportunity. I'm not sure I understood the question completely. Are we talking about uh, an omitted argument or an omission from the record? That is an omission from the appendix that was in the record and was designated in the record, but wasn't included in the appendix. Oh, in that instance, um, I think I might make an argument based on lack of prejudice. In other words, uh, if I were the appellant and realized at this juncture that I left something out of the appendix, I would try to argue that no prejudice is caused to the appellee by um, adding it or at this late date because it was disclosed at the earliest designation of the record. So I think the argument there turns on absence of prejudice. I, I would um, endorse that um, answer and and simply advise um, anybody who reads something um, and wants a further opportunity to file a, a, a motion and attach to the motion that the, the supplement, whether it's a document or maybe a case citation um, or a, a paragraph in clarification. Um, on, this is again for... Um, uh, 
for, for David um, at, at the outset, and then Lynn and uh, Leslie, please chime in. Should an appellee also fix the appellant's designation? I, I think this question um, relates to the ability to do a counter designation, which a lot of litigants don't take advantage of. Right. I would, I would say absolutely. If, if there's documents that have been omitted that should be considered as the appellee, um, I think you should you counter designate that, yes. I think it reflects well on your own credibility because you're pointing out that there are documents that the court should consider, um, particularly if they help you. Uh, that's that's obvious. Um, but but I think anything relevant should should be included for the court's consideration. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, go ahead, Lynn. Go ahead. Sorry. So to add add to that, it may be critical critical for for the appellee's argument. For example, the designation and, and counter designation that David showed um, in the slides. Um, the appellant was arguing that there was no, that an evidentiary hearing was necessary and therefore was limiting the, the pleadings and orders to um, the motion and, and the response and the court's orders. However, I believe the court's order, and in fact, I know the court's order made reference to the entire record in the case, you know, everything that had occurred in the case. So what we had to do was then provide at least um, the most critical documents in the, I think there were three or four, I don't know, maybe five years of proceedings. It was a many docket entries. We didn't include them all, but we certainly included those that were relevant to the disposition of the case um, by the bankruptcy judge. And, and they Thank needed you. to be designated, yeah. You know, um, and I think, if I could, I might add to the response of my colleagues. I would say the answer maybe depends uh, on a kind of case by case. And the reason why I say that is if the appellant left something out of the record that was critical to sustaining its burden on appeal, um, and I as the appellee maybe didn't need that so much for my own case, I think I might highlight the omission to the reviewing court rather than fixing it and argue to the reviewing court that the appellant did not sustain its burden on appeal. So I guess it depends what the omission is. Thank you. And, and this last one, I'd like to take the first crack at uh, with an editorial comment. Um, the question is um, what to do if um, parties to an appeal file briefs um, and nothing happens for years, no oral arguments, no ruling. And I have to say, it's a legitimate question. When I was the practitioner, it happened, but it will never happen at the First Circuit Bankruptcy Appellate Panel. <laughs> nothing slips through the cracks. And I say that not because Leslie is one of our panelists today, but I say that from my experience as a BAP judge for 24 years, and also as chief judge of the bankruptcy appellate panel for the First Circuit. Unfortunately, this does happen at the district court level in some of the districts in the First Circuit. And what a litigant should do is file a motion for a status conference. Between among the districts in the First Circuit, practice is inconsistent. Some district courts sitting as an intermediate appellate court 
do not even schedule oral argument. So when, when you file your brief, it's a good practice to ask for oral argument at the conclusion of your brief or file a separate motion for oral argument. If, if your case is languishing, however, after the filing of your briefs or a motion for oral argument, ask for a status conference and get before the judge. It may have slipped through the cracks or the court might need some additional briefing. So that's, that's my answer to that excellent question. Does anyone wanna chime in? Uh, on that question? Uh, yes. Well, sure. Um, consistent with what Judge Feeney has just said, I can say that the life of um, an appeal at the BAP is roughly nine to 12 months. Now, a little bit of that has changed in COVID times. Uh, sometimes parties have asked for extensions of time that are COVID related in submitting their briefs and other uh, COVID factors have caused us to um, delay somewhat. But I would say nine to 12 months is pretty good when you're looking at um, the lifespan of cases in other appellate courts. Thank you, Leslie. And finally, we have a question um, seeking um, guidance and I'd like to start with Lynn. Um, how, what guidance can, can you give on uh, quoting from cases as opposed to uh, paraphrasing? I, I guess it would it, it would depend upon the power of of the quotation and and sometimes paraphrasing is better because you can condense it and you can sort of be more incisive but if if it's a very powerful quote then I then I would certainly use the direct quotation. David or Leslie. I would um, agree with that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I guess I would be selective in the extent of quoting based on, on word quote, but if, if, if it's, I can't improve upon what Lynn said, if it's powerful, use it. And chances are it's going to crop up in the final opinion in your, in your case. Yeah, I, and I would, as a, and I would as keep an eye on, sorry, I just would keep an eye on how often you're quoting, you know, you don't want to overdo it and have quotation after quotation after quotation, so. But sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, Judge. Oh no, uh, my my point was um, simply to avoid the long block quotes. Um, I I don't think those really really add anything. And finally, um, I had a couple of questions um, for for all of you um, about um, about briefs. Um, the first is for. Um, um, for for all of you, we talked a little bit about controlling precedent, for example, Lynn um, um, provided guidance that if there is a First Circuit case on your issue, be sure that, that you deal with that. And, and also if there is circuit or Supreme Court precedent, deal with that. Let's talk for a minute about non-binding precedent and, and how to deal, deal with that. Um, Leslie, do you wanna start? Uh, yes, thanks Judge Feeney. I have uh, witnessed uh, back judges look at cases outside of our circuit and, and ask that very question, why do I care? Uh, 
and why would I rely on this? And the reason for citing cases outside of our circuit would be twofold that I can think of. One, an absence of controlling authority on the point in our circuit, and B, um, the case law beyond the circuit is well-reasoned. And I think that is the reason for citing any case that's not first circuit law, is it's, it's well-reasoned and persuasive. Does um, the BAMP um, have a preference uh, if, if there isn't a um, F second or uh, Supreme Court or um, uh, F sub site, if, the, if there's only a Westlaw site or a Lexis site, do you have a preference for Westlaw or Lexis or should um, a brief writer cite to, to both? I would say the preference of the BAP is probably Westlaw, but certainly a Lexis citation will be considered. And, and, and I guess if you have access to both, that's perfect. Um, one thing I would steer away from are uh, table citations. Well, that concludes our questions. Um, any concluding remarks from our panelists? No, just thank you everybody for taking your lunch hour to join us. Well, thank you for the wealth of information that all of you have, have provided. And, um, and we hope to see you um, at the Bench Meets Bar. And um, thank you for um, your presentations today. Thank you. Great to see everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye.